Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. The CFO role is changing rapidly, moving from cost controller to strategic visionary. And with every change comes opportunity. We are here to help you take advantage of this transition, to win at work, drive your career forwards, and lead with confidence. Join Hannah Munro, Managing Director of ITAS, a financial transformation consultancy, as she interviews key experts to give you real-world advice and guidance on how to transform your processes, people, and data. Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. So hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of CFO 4.0, a really interesting guest for you guys today. So with me today, I have Chris Rowling, who is the CFO at CoinMe. Now, um, Chris has actually had a really varied background across a number of well-known brands, but rather than me um, tell you all about what he's been doing, because I might just get it wrong, I'm actually going to ask him to introduce himself and talk about his background. So lovely to have you on the show, Chris. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I mean, it's uh, with, after a build-up like that, I, I don't quite know where to start, <laughs> but um, it's been... Um, it, it, as you can tell by the gray hairs, it's been a it's been a very long and meandering career, both to CFO and then kind of away from CFO. I, I made a detour into the world of being a COO, a CEO. Then I did ten years in private equity, albeit at the end of the day, everything came back to a PL and a balance sheet and finance and cash. Um, I've worked the vast majority of my career overseas. Um, I've kind of lost track. Of the number of uh, countries I've worked in, I think it's 13 or 15 countries. I started in the Middle East, uh, did a very short stint back in the U.S., uh, where I'm originally from, as you can tell from the accent, and then very quickly moved to the U.K., a number of uh, countries in Europe, uh, Italy, Switzerland, Germany, uh, France, uh, and then moved back to the U.S. Uh, with a group called Getty Images. Uh, which was based out of London at the time. Uh, spent two, three years here with Getty Images and did another startup and then went back to the UK and uh, then headed off to Asia. And I've spent uh, quite a few years in Asia. I moved back to the States about four years ago. And so geographically, I'm, I'm really kind of a global nomad uh, or a man with, with no country. From a, a finance perspective, I, I've kind of done all functional areas of finance. So I, I started as an accountant. I made the move into controller. Uh, I was doing M&A. I was doing business development. At one point, I had procurement and purchasing and supply chain. And um, I did audit. Uh, the only thing I don't think I did was tax. Wise decision. And it's, it's one of those areas <laughs> where, yeah, you, you depend on the experts. And I had no desire and I kind of knew what I didn't know. And um, tax is probably the only functional finance area I really haven't done. As you mentioned, I've worked for major multinationals, be it Kellogg's, uh, Pepsi, Imperial Chemical Industries, ICI, uh, when it still existed. And I've also then worked for startups. And I kind of put CoinMe back in that startup, albeit we've been around you know, largely since 2017. I've worked headquarters. I've worked local field office. And so it's kind of been a, a gambit of, of absolutely everything. It's just been a smorgasbord of, of opportunity. And, um, you know, it's it's a career filled with a couple of trophies, lots of scars, um, but no regrets. It's It's been good fun. Absolutely. And I'm not quite where to start, sure where to start in terms of that history, because you've literally gone cross industry, cross globe, you know, um, cross roles as well. So, you know, if you, when you take a step back and you look at obviously all of the different types of organizations, all the different types of finance teams, what do you feel was the, those that did it finance well, what do you think was the success factors that they had? When you look back, you know, what do you aim for? Yeah. I mean, there it's, it's all very, Varied. I think, you know, the beauty of finance is, and, and people can argue, I'd say it's 70 to 80% the same. It's around cash, it's around the balance sheet, it's around the PL, it's around the cost drivers, the revenue drivers. 
And so for me to move internationally, you obviously had cultural differences and, and that took some learning as to how to, you know, become a chameleon and, and learn to morph and learn those cultural differences. Um, but from a finance perspective, it was very, very similar from industry to industry, country to country. Uh, once you learn the jargon and the acronyms and the language of the industry, you know, at the end of the day, it came down to the P&L and the balance sheet and the cash flow statement. And so it was reasonably easy for me to make that transition. The difficult transition, I think, um, having kind of swung from both ends of the, of the pendulum is small company to large company or startup to multinational. And the difference there is obviously in one case, you've got cash, you've got you know, a big bureaucracy behind you. You don't necessarily need to worry about, you know, how are we going to make the next payroll? Uh, you simply pick up the phone, you call treasury and, and you're funded. And when you're in a small company or a startup, such as CoinMate, you worry much more about cash. You worry much more about what's the cash payback of the investment. Can we afford to do an ERP or is there another compromise? Can I afford to hire more people? Um, and you really become a jack of all trade. And you know, it's, it's kind of a ridiculous phrase, but the rolling up of your, sh your shirt sleeves is much more pronounced in that small company environment. Some people hate it. You know, they like the comfort of, of the big multinational and, and the ability to just pick up the phone. You know, in the case of the startup, you literally need to build your way out of it. Um, you need to hire the team. You need to invest in the tools. You know, you, you basically have a blank slate. And for some people like me, I much prefer that. I, I would much rather walk into a vacuum and build from that, starting obviously with the team, than to walk into, say, a, a situation where people say, okay, well, you're now the maintenance man. Don't worry about that. Everything is, is fixed. It's running smoothly. I, I much prefer the former of total organized chaos. <laughs> <laughs> but each each entity has done it well. I mean, Pepsi obviously places a huge, or certainly when I was there, placed a huge emphasis on HR. We did HR planning on a semi-annual basis. It was very robust in terms of performance appraisals, methodology. We had handbooks for everything. We had training, on and on and on. And so, you know, if I had to pick pick and choose, I would say you know, Pepsi was was first and foremost from kind of a team building and support and employee development standpoint. Um, but then again, I've been with other multinationals where, you know, it was a turnaround situation. It was restructuring. It was quite grim. We were taking out vast numbers of headcount. And if anything, it was the opposite. Um, so it's it's a difficult question. Um, and, and, there's been pros and cons to every um, every one of my situations and companies, and, and you know, other than Pepsi, it's really kind of tough to um, to say that one stood out more than the other. I mean, it, for us, very much at CoinMe when I joined four years ago, there was nothing. We didn't even have bank accounts. We had no auditors. It's the first time in my life I've had to look for auditors as opposed to auditors looking for me, and um, you know, very frustrating. And and there were two people. You know, it was me and, and another guy. And, you know, I was, was coming from a very large position at, at Ernst & Young in Hong Kong, you know, where literally I, I had bells I could ring and they would bring me tea to all of a sudden I'm literally writing checks by hand and doing payroll manually. You know, we've got 20 people in the company. but And for me, it's a little bit like camping. You hate it while you're doing it, but then you kind of look back and you say, hey, that was actually kind of fun. And really for me, the journey over the last four years has been very much first and foremost, build the team, make sure you have the right people. Uh, it's hire big if you can, because it's in when you're in a hyper growth company like CoinMe, the company will be two times, three times, four times the size. And you need to ensure that that the company will grow into the people that you have as opposed to vice versa. And so fortunately, because crypto 
blockchain was trendy, quite hot. Uh, we had a lot of people that wanted to get involved who, you know, all came from, from quite varied backgrounds. And, you know, they were very much used to running hundred million dollar companies, if not billion dollar companies. And so, uh, you know, like me, they've all had to take a step back and, uh, the company has, has grown into them and, and, you know, continues to grow into them. And, and it's been fantastic on the tool side. Uh, we have replaced our accounting system. Uh, that was hard. Um, and we still continue to develop, but we're, we're a very small team. We're, we're five people plus myself. Um, and, um, we're coping and, and doing quite well, but, um, but no, it's, it's, as I said, I've, I've luckily seen, seen the good and the bad, you know, I've worked for angels and demons and I, I could kind of sit back and, and adapt to what I've seen and what, what's worked in the past. And, and it's been quite useful. Now, you said that obviously one of the big differences is the cash situation, which I completely understand going from a, a startup into a big corporate. So, you know, and obviously, obviously we are going into a really challenging time at the moment in terms of financing, you know, the days of completely open checkbooks with no questions, I think, have disappeared. Um, they were around for a few years as, uh, you know, um, interest rates were low, cash was was available. So, what are some of the challenges that, you know, that startups and particularly, you know, fast growing startups um, seeing and um, what, you know, seeing in the market at the moment? And how, how do you as a finance leader cope and deal with that? Yeah, I mean, I think the first uh, I'll kind of start with the, the big picture. I mean, within a startup or a hyper growth company. There's always a natural tension, I'll say, between the CFO and maybe the CEO, whereby the CEO is obviously focused on growth. They're obviously focused on the top line. And the CFO is obviously focused on cash or should be obviously focused on cash, bottom line. And there's always this very healthy tension of grow, grow, grow. Versus me saying, Hey, hold on a second. You know, we, we, we don't want to raise too much money. Uh, we don't want to dilute ourselves. Um, and you end up with a healthy balance, hopefully, whereby you have limited amounts of cash. You raise money when you need to raise money without overly diluting yourselves. And, but then again, you're not necessarily constraining growth or investing in headcount, et cetera. And, you know, obviously, as we want to make CapEx, unfortunately, CoinMe, we're, we're quite CapEx light. But for us, most of our investment is in people. And we've tremendously tripled, quadrupled headcount in the, um, in the four years that we've been there. And the cash payback on headcount, particularly if it's engineering or sales or business development, is a little bit staggered. So it comes in a little bit later than when you hire the people. but Sure enough, that first payroll hits the PL. And so it's always this debate in terms of now what is the cash cash flow implications of this growth, of this investment, uh, of this new market. And fundamentally, you need to establish a way of working through that. And um, you know, sometimes it comes down to banging on tables and and well, pre-COVID. Um, and it's like I said, it's it's a healthy tension, and it's it's quite frankly the role of that CFO to ensure that there's not frivolous spending, etc. But fast forward to where we are today, it's and I, I've been through several cycles. So again, I, I'm I have the scars, and and I've kind of learned from the mistakes. But I'm a firm believer in you know hope for the best, but prepare for the worst, and we're currently doing that. And by preparing for the worst, I mean, what are we going to do to extend our cash runway? And, you know, there's two ways of doing that. One is obviously to raise debt or equity. And we're actually currently in the process of doing that. And then simultaneously and, and in parallel, it's how do you reduce your cash burn burn, or how do you restructure your, your cost profile? And I think it's not one or the other, it's a matter of doing it simultaneously. 
And so obviously raising money in this environment has become difficult on the one hand, um, but being prudent and looking at discretionary spending, et cetera, you know, that to me is something that should be, it should be done anytime, whether it's, whether it's, you know, pre-recession, recession, or, you know, boom times. Um, I think the issue today is quite unique because you have a situation in which VCs or venture capital firms and private equity firms are actually sitting on tremendous amounts of dry powder. And the fundraising environment has been very positive in the past couple of years, if, you know, if not eight years. Um, and so the pile of money to be deployed is unbelievably high. But what we're in now is kind of what I call the pause, which is basically, oh my God, the bottom's fallen out. We don't quite know where the public market comps are going or, or where they're, they're at. And I hear people say, oh, well, public comps are 40% down, 60% down, et cetera. You don't know, particularly in our case, where we don't have a lot of private company, comparable companies, uh, because what we do is quite unique. Um, you know, what's been the impact on private company valuations? And it's kind of all over the place. The private equity firms are now trying to figure out, given that it's a quarter end, what is the valuation of our portfolio? Do we write that down? Do we keep it static? What do we do? And it's a long-winded way of saying that people are currently pausing and trying to wait for the dust to settle to make these investments. But they have to make the investments because they have to deploy that capital so that they can then go out and raise that next round and, and you know, get 2% of a, of a much higher number. And so it's, it's quite unique in that the money is there. It's just a question of navigating through what is our valuation? You know, are we going to do a down round or an up round? How much are we going to raise? And if I dial it back, I mean, as I said, prepare for the worst. Really, my, my advice is to start that fundraising much earlier, you know, than you may have in the past. It will take, definitely take longer than you anticipate. Um, and also be very flexible in terms of what that valuation is. I, you know, I've grown up never to do a down round and to ensure that the valuation of the company continues to increase irrespective of comps and markets. And fortunately, we're, we're kind of in that position. But, you know, again, the flexibility in terms of the terms of the, the equity fundraising, the valuation, possibly raise more than you need and, and trade off cash for dilution. Um, it's, it's just better to be safe than, than sorry. Um, but again, at the same time, focus on the cost savings, focus on kind of what I call the low hanging fruit, possibly dial back advertising and marketing. You know, if it's not necessarily going to have a short term impact on your, on your customer base. Um, and that, hopefully should also work in parallel to the fundraising to, you know, basically give you more cash runway such that either the markets improve or such that you could get a deal done. But, you know, the other, the other advice is it's fundraising is basically marketing um, and you're selling the company, you're selling the management team, it's marketing and you need to be investor friendly. So you need to have a very concise and tight and compelling pitch deck. And I can't tell you how many pitch decks I've seen in my private equity career, but you know, I could probably remember 10 where I said, Oh my God, that blows me away. It's, it's, it's so compelling and it catches me. And then I've seen others that are 60 pages long and, and you literally make it through the first couple of pages, but ensuring that the company is, is investor friendly. You know, focusing on the growth because that really is what the investors are looking at. How do we get a two x, three x, if not more, return in three to five years? And a lot of that is premised through top line growth and and EBITDA growth for that matter. Um, you know, a lot of people have asked, well, do you guys use third parties to help you raise money? And I'm a little bit mixed. Um, you know, if we're trying to raise money from an overseas market where we don't really have a presence. We don't have the 
the contact list or Rolodex per se. Uh, we may use placement agents to assist. We've done that in Japan. We've done that to, to some degree in Australia, Europe. But, you know, other than relying on your board, your advisory team, if you have one, your existing investors are, are the absolute best source of money. And quite frankly, having your investors come back in is really kind of a, of a you know, I, I, I don't know what you'd call it. It's, it's, you know, really kind of a vote of confidence, um, you know, in the company and, and in the valuation. But, you know, fundamentally, it's going to take longer. It's going to be much harder work. It needs to be slick. You, know, you need to have a data room, a virtual data room that's ready to go. And um, yeah, it's it's a long-winded way of saying start earlier. It's going to be much harder work than anybody anticipated. Um, you need to do everything you can to extend that runway. You need to look at other sources of cash or, or funding, be it bank debt, be it convertibles, which we've used quite a bit in the past. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely much more challenging times. But as I said, the money is there for taking, assuming, you know, you can get your pitch across and, and, um, find a, uh, a willing investor. I think that's a really interesting comment. Um, and I liked your phrase, the pause, because I remember seeing that pause um, in the COVID time. It was like, a, oh, my God, this is happening. We don't know what's exactly. going to happen. We don't know when it's going to happen. And there was almost like everyone just held their breath for about three months is what we saw. Because um, obviously we're on the other end, so we see the impact on people having conversations around funding. And it's really interesting. And then all of a sudden it was like, everyone took, you know, took the brakes off and was actually going hell for leather. So we saw that real shift and all of a sudden acceleration. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're hoping for that. It's, it's um, yeah, I mean, the markets were, were good for the past two months and um, the last two weeks have been pretty ugly. And, and it's, the problem is you can't afford to try to time it and say, okay, well, things should open up next month. Uh, we'll go out fundraising at that stage. It's quite frankly, you've just got to, to take the, the bitter pill and set off and do it and, and, you know, just hope that, uh, you know, things stabilize. And, and as I said, the, the dust settles such that, uh, you can raise the money, but it's, um, yeah, it's just, it's uncertain times and investors don't like uncertainty. And so, again, the more certainty that we can provide as a company in terms of, yes, the price of Bitcoin and, and other cryptocurrencies have gone down, but guess what? We make money based on transactions. And the more volatile the market, the more transactions there are, be it buys or be it sells. And so, quite frankly, we love volatility and we don't take positions and we don't hold crypto assets. And so we're not having to mark to market necessarily other than maybe one day's worth of sales. Um, and so we're not impacted. And so as long as you can get that across and you're not lumped into the general, uh, oh, you're a crypto company, crypto's in a, in a disaster scenario. Therefore, we're not even going to look at you. As long as you can try to get that point across that no, 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 it's completely different for us. We relish. Uh, the uncertainty of what's going on and the volatility. And quite frankly, we're thriving as a result of that. And if anything, now is the time to get in, you know, not later. And, and that's kind of why I said it comes very much back to being investor friendly, having that concise and, and compelling pitch deck and message. But at the end of the day, the results speak for themselves. I mean, you, you need to have a, a nice PL, a nice balance sheet, a, a good growth story. But if your existing investors are happy and they're willing to come in for more, that to me is is kind of the bona fide um, seal of approval per se. And so, again, dealing with your your existing investors and and keeping them apprised of the situation, it's it's fundamental. Now you mentioned, and, and I, I always say it's it's you know the the customer is king, but cash is is a very close number two, <laughs> and. You know, and that's kind of back to what I said in the very beginning about that healthy tension between the CEO 
and the, the CFO and, and, you know, the CEO is very much focused on the customer and, and sales growth and the CFO should be very much focused on cash. Absolutely. And obviously you mentioned starting fundraising earlier than you would normally. Is there any downsides to doing that? Is there such a thing as fundraising fatigue if you start it too early? Is there, you know, is there anything to it's, watch out? No, it's, a, it's a good question. I mean, it's it literally, you hear, you hear the pat phrase, well, fundraising is a full-time job. It it is. And, um, you know, you got to get your other work done, but it is quite time sensitive and, and quite hard work and lots of conference calls. Uh, it's a little bit easier in COVID times because you're not having to get onto a plane and, and you know, all the logistics of, of meeting the investors, et cetera. It's, it's a little bit more streamlined and, and I would argue easier uh, from a time perspective to raise. But no, I, I, I think the fundamental issue comes down to if you if you raise too early, you're raising money at potentially a lower valuation, and therefore you're over diluting, uh, you know your your shareholdings. And and what we've done at CoinMe is yes, we could have gone out and raised twenty million dollars, thirty million dollars a year ago, which would have given us you know two years runway, you know three years runway, etc. But we would have had to have been issuing stock at a very low valuation and, and we would have diluted ourselves, you know, 25%, 30%. And so it's just not worth it. If you're confident that your company is hyper growth, your valuation is going to be growing. And so what we did very consciously is we would only raise as much as we needed for really the next six months. And then we would go out again and raise another modest round and each and every time, you know, we would be raising, say, small money, $5 million, $10 million, but the valuation would continue to climb and the dilution would be manageable. The difficulty now is you do really need to be able to raise six months, 12 months runway, probably 12 months, if not longer runway. You're probably having a much more difficult conversation vis-a-vis what is the valuation. Potentially, it's a down round. Um, but the issue is there really is no choice. You've got to have that runway. You know, hopefully the company's growth has not been constrained, but again, overall, a lot of revenues are coming down. Uh, you know, companies are not seeing that growth rate. And so you can't necessarily grow yourself out of the problem. And that's why I come back. You've got to find cash funding, whether it's financing or whether it's cost savings. Um, because there is no choice. I mean, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's as dire as survival versus dilution, but it's, it's a bitter pill in terms of, yes, we may have to raise more than we need. Yes, we may have to raise at a lower valuation than we think we're worth. And, uh, yes, we're probably going to be diluted a little bit more, but quite frankly, dilution is worth continuing to you know, maintain the company and, and again, hope that, uh, that the dust settles and, and things will, will normalize shortly. But yeah, that's, that's the difficulty of raising too much too early. But quite frankly, it, it really comes down to the company. You know, how much cash is the company burning? How much cash is on the balance sheet? But it's very easy to calculate what is your cash runway. And. You know, certainly I would recommend every company having a cash runway that's in excess of six months. And in terms of we're talking about a cash runway, how is inflation impacting that cash runway and how much um, you need to either try and raise versus and how are you sort of managing the the unknown around that piece? Yeah, I mean, fortunately for us, the inflation situation is not necessarily of major concern. And the reason for that is, is our costs are largely headcount oriented. And so, yes, we do see salary inflation, but it's, it's moderate and we're able to control it. And now with COVID, we're allowed or, or we're able to basically recruit all over the world. And so we can kind of manage our, our 
people cost per se, uh, or people mix, depending on where people are working and what their salaries are. Um, but we don't have raw material inputs, thankfully. We're not seeing, you know, we're, we're CapEx lights. So we're not having to go out and, and buy machinery or anything like that. And so luckily at CoinMe, we're not being dramatically impacted by inflation, nor are we necessarily seeing any sort of a volume slowdown, uh, you know, in terms of our transactions and people buying and selling crypto. Um, and so it's it's kind of a different situation. For us, it's, it's much more industrial issues, what's happening to the investor base, because many of the investors have been exposed to potential write-offs or other companies. There's been a bit of a ripple effect through the crypto blockchain space. And that has been much more of a concern for us than the inflation situation. Um, employment, uh, you know, many firms are, are now laying off people and, and they're being made redundant. Uh, you know, throughout the crypto blockchain space, you, you see headlines of 10%, 20% uh, redundancies. And quite frankly, we're taking advantage of that because we're basically saying, look, uh, there's some great talent. We've not been able to afford them in the past or been able to compete with these big exchanges. And lo and behold, we're now a destination of choice, which is great. So um, probably not the answer you wanted to hear, but for us, it's it's been very minimal impact. And, and if anything, we've been able to take advantage of it uh, to some extent. I literally uh, recorded a podcast this week when we talked about silver linings, you know, like finding opportunity in challenging times, because I think that's a really interesting piece. And like you say, like other, obviously, it's all, it's never good when companies are struggling in, you know, in your industry, but the piece where if you can pivot, like you say, and take advantage of the opportunity that that offers you to sort of make that step through, that that's a, a huge advantage. And I think there are some interesting dynamics about where people invest at this time in terms of internally. And we talk about saving cash, which is really important, but actually, if you invest wisely and really you know, think about the investments you're making at this stage, actually, you come out of it um, in a much stronger position. And there was a few instances of companies that we work with that did that really well during COVID. They made some hard choices, but that actually really paid off 12 months later because they were in a position to to ride the wave as it sort of came out. So, yeah, it's, it's no, absolutely. I mean, it's always good to look at it in hindsight and, and say, yeah, yeah that, was, that was a great decision. And, you know, which is hard, but it's it's an art, not a science. And, and there's quite a bit of luck and quite a bit of timing, um, <laughs> obviously involved as well. But it's again, it's just it's hope for the best, prepare for the worst, and you know that's the job of the CFO. You know, I've I've been called a pessimist in the past. I've been called you know the tightwad and on and on. But the reality is, I'm paid to be pragmatic. I'm pre you know paid to ensure that the company continues to live and survive and to optimize that cost base, to, you know, again, negotiate that grow, grow, grow versus, okay, guys, let's be prudent. You know, let's make sure that everything has some form of a payback, you know, even if it is five years or seven years, but at least let's have that discussion and put that on paper and think about it. And, um, you know, in a startup environment where, you know, people are, are there because of the growth. They're there because of the technology. It's often very difficult to have that conversation in terms of now just exactly what is that payback? And, and is it going to be 2.5 years or, or five years? And they kind of look at you like we don't even know what a payback is. And it's just the fact of life. And, and so I'm kind of viewing this as it's, it is a reset. Um, it is a bit of a pivot. Um, but. It's good for our generation of employees, many of whom have never been through downturns or recessions um, or anything like that, to kind of recalibrate a little and just realize, hey, at the end of the day, the business is in business because of cash. And we need to become self-sustainable in terms of cash, we need to become cash flow positive or EBITDA positive, as, as we say. Um, 
And that requires trade-offs and, and it can't just be grow, grow, grow. And, you know, companies have been very successful and, and their valuations have been incredible just by focusing on top line. And our valuation for a number of years was very much a multiple of top line. Whereas I've grown up both on both sides of the table, be it the PE side of the table and, and the, the, the guy with the tin cup of looking at earnings multiples and, and cash flow multiples. And it's a reset. And at the end of the day, it all comes down to cash. Um, you know, payroll is cash. And again, I'm, I'm somewhat taking advantage of this broader scenario to kind of educate the team in terms of, look, at the end of the day, we really need to focus on what's going to have the biggest bang for the buck. What is the smartest resource allocation to make? Do we really need to hire somebody? You know, I've had to introduce the word discretionary. What is discretionary and what is non-discretionary? And it's it's just part of that CFO role. Um, and as I said, I have lots of scars. I've got tremendously thick skin. And um, but that's that's my job at the end of the day is to keep the company alive and, and keep it prospering. And I and I I think that is a that's one of the biggest challenges in as a CFO. You want to be the one helping people um, along the way and delivering what they need in terms of finance. But yeah, sometimes having to play parent even to the CEO and to to explain you know and to help him under help them under I say him. The gosh, there you go. Discrimination they, accent hit yeah. him or her um, to to um, to deliver on their longer term vision. I think is always it's always a challenge, and and that I think is one of the hardest pieces because you are that right hand of that CEO. You are the person that's helping them deliver on their mission, their vision for the company. How do you balance the need for saying helping them do what they want to do, but also like you say, being that pragmatist? And being that person that makes sure that there is a company at the end of that vision. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a challenge. It takes time. Um, you know, certainly in my situation, I've been there for four years. The early days were much harder than the um, than the current days. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, everybody has an opinion. Uh, but if I can back up my opinion with facts, uh, that tends to help. Um, you know, if I can back up the opinion with a forecast or with trends or with historical information, that helps. But trying to take the emotion out of it and taking the passion out of it, uh, and, and very much making it a, a discussion, not, not an argument, but a discussion in terms of, okay, now what is that best path? And, the reality is there there often is not one best path. It's going to be a compromise. There's going to be, um, you know, many different choices. And it's just essentially, and, and that really is, again, the job of finance is to be able to produce that value added analysis, even if it is, you know, non-factual or 80% factual, but providing the inputs to have that discussion and have that analysis and have that decision making uh, is really the job of, of finance. And, and we've been very much focused on that. Now, you can say, well, then you need the tools in order to be able to do that. You need the people to be able to do that. Um, and in many startups, you just don't have that latitude. And so you just have to, you know, through blood, sweat and tears, uh, try to pull together that data. And, and that's what we had to do in the, in the early days. But it's, as I said, if you can get it right, it's, it's a good balance. It's, it's very much the CEO is, is passionate, very articulate. They set out the vision, the mission, et cetera, et cetera. And then the CFO very much has to figure out now, how do we pay for that? How do we get there? What are those trade offs? Um, and. In many cases, it, it's it's a natural relationship and it works quite well. In other cases, it, it does bubble to the surface. And then it's just a question of, okay, how do we hash this through? Um, luckily, in a small company, you've, you typically will have a very small leadership team. And it's quite easy to have that conversation. There's not a lot of hierarchy. There's not a lot of departments. You don't have to work your way up the chain. What's difficult is kind of this COVID environment 
where again, you're depending quite a bit on written communications, be it Slack or email. It's not a question of, hey, let's go out and grab a coffee and hash this through. It's it's a little bit more unwieldy, uh, in my opinion and, and in my experience, because at the end of the day, I, I do believe that a, a heart-to-heart conversation or a face-to-face conversation does work wonders. But it's um, it's it's very situational. It's very ad hoc. But again, fundamentally, my job is to figure out okay, what is the best use of company money and company assets, and that's what I do. I think it's a really interesting point. And we were literally talking about this just before the podcast is that that shift from, um, you know, being reliant on that face-to-face contact, whether that's with investors, whether that's teams. And I would echo, I, I think remote working is brilliant when things are going well, when, you know, it brings so much more work-life balance, it reduces cost, all of those. I think the biggest challenge is when people are struggling, whether that's performance related, whether that's at home, it, it doesn't give you that that opportunity to, like you say, pull somebody aside, get them in the fresh air outside of their you know, their, their work environment and do that. And so I don't know about you, but that's one of the things that I've, you know, I've done, no, I've, t- I've, got, I've popped up and said, look, let's meet for a coffee. Let's have those conversations because it's different. Yeah, no, I miss it. I, I miss it quite a bit. I mean, there's been a lot of pros uh, to COVID and, and remarkably, I mean, we're hundred percent remote and it works. We've, we've seen tremendous cost savings, obviously from a real estate perspective um, from it. Uh, Pre-COVID, we were very much based in Seattle. I think probably 80% of our employees were here in Seattle, Washington, uh, all local Pacific Northwest. And today we're the tiny minority. Uh, we have people in just about every state. Uh, we now have people in internationally. And so in terms of attracting talent and being able to hire and fill those positions and basically staff for growth, COVID has been quite friendly to us and, and we've been able to hire people and, and operate remotely. Where I think um, it's hurt us to some degree is hiring people remotely is a bit challenging. And, and maybe for an old timer such as myself, you know, you say, oh, well, it's not a big deal. Zoom is Zoom and, you know, on and on. But you really do pick up something when you're looking at somebody face to face in their eyes, getting, picking up the vibe. Um, you know, a lot of my decision making is still gut, gut decisions, albeit that it's been formed over, you know, many, many years and, and many scars and, and wins. And you miss that. And, you know, I, I have people on my team who believe it or not, I have never physically met. Um, you know, they're working on the East coast. You know, I feel as though I know them, but it's it's kind of strange because it's it's a face on the screen. We we get people together once a month on a company call. We have 90 little boxes or 95 boxes on the screen. And you kind of look at these people and you say, well, I don't know who this is. Um, I, I know the name. I know what they do, but I don't know this person. And I think that creates some cultural, company cultural challenges in terms of not just exactly what is CoinMe's culture. Um, it, from putting my CFO hat back on, you say, okay, is everybody being necessarily as productive as if they were in an office where you kind of know everybody's doing 40 day, 40 hours a week. Uh, you see them working, um, on and on here in a remote environment. Some people are actually working harder. I, I, I have been working harder because I just, I'm not self-disciplined. I have no boundaries. And it seems as though I'm working from, from the minute I open my eyes until the minute I close my eyes. And, and so possibly our productivity as a company has gone up as a result of COVID. I don't know. I, I just don't know. And it's, you know, and then from a training perspective, I'm so much used to being able to sit down with somebody, show them you know, have them do that, do it, shadow them, you know, be there if they trip and fall, pick them up. And it's very hard to train. Um, and you, you know, you can, yes, you can share your screen, but it's not as effective. It's not as useful. And, and so I think, you know, I, 
I don't know. I can't say there's more pros than cons, but it's become normal, which is kind of scary. Um, and as I said, we've, we've decided to be a hundred percent remote. So, you know, maybe we go back and there's a hybrid. Um, but it, it works for us. It's that it's become status quo. Um, but I do miss, I, I do miss the face to face interactions and we're starting to have some, uh, certainly as a leadership team, which is great, but it's not quite the same. And I, I totally buy in if the company is doing well. If everything is in maintenance mode, if, you know, everything is working and there's no crisis, it's fine. But if there are issues, if you do need to rally the troops, if you do need to, to sort out an issue or fundamentally pivot, I think it's much easier if, if people could do that face to face. My personal view is that it's um, remote work is more valuable in some ways in that it offers so much more opportunity, but it takes really good management skills because you can't, you can't necessarily catch stuff as it's happening. You, you tend to see it more at the later end when it's becoming a problem versus if you're in the office, you overhear something, you clock it. Um, and I think that's the biggest challenge with us shifting to remote work. It challenges us as team leads and as managers and as leadership to manage well and proactively versus reactively. Um, and there's a yep, huge, completely agree. there is a huge piece. Yeah, and, and it's funny because in so many different roles, you would say, okay, well, I, I've got this down. I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I know how to lead. I know how to manage, but no, this is different rules. It's completely different. And, um, as I said, it, it's it's quite it's quite bizarre in some cases, but it has opened up the world of opportunities. Certainly, you know, for our employees, and you know, there'll, there'll be case studies written, I'm sure, in two three years about oh my oh my god, do you remember this COVID remote working, and maybe we're all back to normal because I do believe in the circle of life. <laughs> Everything just kind of repeats, and we'll come back and. You know, there may be a day where we kind of look back and say, oh, that was nice being able to work from home and, and never having to, to, you know, wear work clothes. But it's it's amazing. I mean, we've we've all adapted and, and some have done it better than others. But it's um, you, it's to me, it's just you roll with the punches and, and you get on with what you've got and, and kind of what what Mother Nature throws at you. And, and you know, you, you just try to prosper from from what you're given. I think that's a brilliant philosophy is that making the most of the the challenge and turning it into something positive is is a great way to look at COVID because let's be honest, there was plenty of challenges. There was plenty of bad things around it. So being able to say that there was something something positive coming out of it, there was some opportunities, I think is a great is a great piece. So we are rapidly coming to the end of this podcast. So it would be great if we could almost take a step back and, you know, for those that have listened to this podcast and are want those kind of top tips for going into fundraising and for making sure that that cash balance is healthy as an experienced CFO and given the the amount of companies that you've had these conversations with, what are your top tips and things to think about? Yeah, the top the top tips are are kind of as I said, prepare for the worst and hope hope for the best. Um, start earlier than you need to. Be more flexible than you need to in terms of how much you're raising, what what valuation. Be investor friendly in terms of of having that tight deck um, and and having a virtual data room that that satisfies all requests. Um, you know, working your existing investors. Uh, to hopefully bring in other investors, like-minded investors, or to up their ante uh, is key. Finding that cornerstone investor, uh, because typically, if you can find the cornerstone investor or the anchor investor, filling in the rest of the round typically is easier. And, and so you really need to find that that upfront investor. Um, and, you know, really, as I said, uh, focus on cash. Focus on all ways of, of saving or preserving or extending your cash runway. Um, but it's, as I said, it's, it's a full-time job. It's sales and marketing. Uh, you know, finance people are often accused of not being good sales and marketing people. But, you know, I, I would venture to say 
fundraising is, is really the responsibility of the entire leadership team. And really the finance individual plays a huge role, albeit the investor is very much looking, looking at the CEO, engaging with the CEO, but having a solid CFO and having credible accounting, et cetera, it's, it's a relief to the investors. They know they have a safe pair of hands that will watch their invested funds on and on and on. And, and so it's, um, it's, it used to be easier than it is now, but it's doable. Um, and, um, but it, it is hard work and, and start, start sooner rather than later is, is really my overriding, uh, you know, advice. No, and I love that. And, and you made a really insightful comment there about seeing like what role you as a CFO play in that, in that perception of the organization. And I think that's something CFOs don't necessarily think about enough is that they're so focused on the numbers, thinking about who, not what character, but what part do you seem to play in the management leadership and and how do you want to come across and be perceived is a really interesting piece to think about. So some, some great food for thought there. And thank you so much, Chris, for sharing both your journey um, with CoinMe and also obviously your experience, um, which I have to say is extensive. I think you've uh, you've ticked so many different boxes in terms of what you've done. So if, if our listeners want to understand more about CoinMe and what you guys are doing, where's the best place to find that out? Where should they look? Yeah, I mean, I'm more than happy to, to engage with anybody. You can find me on LinkedIn. And uh, in terms of the company, the website is is very navigation, <laughs> investor friendly, I should say, <laughs> at uh, coinme.com. But uh, Hannah, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've enjoyed the conversation. You don't look forward to maintaining that relationship. It's it's been fun. Yeah, no, it's been really interesting. And thank you so much for, for sharing all your top tips, which I think are so, so vital in this this current climate. So um so all of our listeners, don't don't worry, we will pop obviously a link to Chris's profile in the show notes and of course the link to the CoinMe website. And if you have questions that you wish I'd asked, you know, I'm sure there are people listening to this going, you could have asked that, Hannah. So just tell me, you know, please do reach out. My 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 LinkedIn profile, my DMs are always open. I love the feedback from the show. And uh, yeah, no, it, it's um it, it would be great to to get any feedback and any questions, and maybe even we we might end up with a repeat and convincing Chris to come back on the show. So would be delighted to. Thank you, <laughs> thank you so much, guys. And as always, we appreciate reviews. Please, if you've enjoyed this episode, if you've enjoyed and got value from what Chris has to say, then please do um, leave a comment, leave a review because it just helps us in our mission here at CFO. For we know. So take care, guys, and I'll see you soon.